Rebecca Romney is the manager of Bowman Rare Books's Las Vegas Gallery, located in the shops at the Venetian Palazzo, is what it's called, Grand Canal Shops. Which is a very upscale shopping mall that's connected to an upscale casino hotel. Casino. hotel. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay, right smack in the, on the strip. That's right. right. Uh, welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Getting paid to be around books and to research the books that you have sounds like a fantastic job. That's exactly it. My job is to take care of these books, to research them, and to talk with people about them all day. And sell them. Yeah, Yeah. well, but selling just comes from talking with people about them. If they really love books and they have the disposable income, there's not really much selling that happens because people buy the books because they love them, and I'm not going to convince them whether or not they love that book. I suppose what you do is give them a rationale for their love. Yeah, I do. And the other thing, too, is I make it practical. Because, for example, someone might come in and say, I love 20th century American literature, but where do I start? And I'll be able to say, okay, well, let's make a little roadmap here. These are the high spots that if you love American literature, you should really consider Mm -hmm. as centerpieces. And this is where you want to fill out. And we'd talk decisions. Do you want to be a completist? Get every work by Faulkner? Mm Do you just want to get, you know, The Sound of the Fury and Absalom, Absalom? But so it's much more that kind of a consultant function where yeah. I'm kind of making it practical for them to build on something that they love as a hobby. So giving them a structure, a plan. Um, and yeah. it, going over pros and cons. So for example, um, some people don't care if there's restoration on their books. And yeah. Some people do. And that's a decision you have there's to no make. There's no rule of thumb. There's just, just basically a preference then. Unrestored is better. Yeah. However, unrestored is more costly. And there are some books that are very hard to find unrestored. So you have to say, uh, what we generally say is you want to buy the best quality book that you can afford. Sound of the Fury, you can buy a copy of that for, say, $30,000 in the first issue dust jacket. And it's still nice, but the spine will be toned. It'll be like $70,000 or more if the spine is beautiful. And you have to say, is this the copy for me or do I want to spend double to get a beautiful copy yeah. and everyone has to kind of make that decision so and it, and it can be case by case or it can be overall a thematic thing in your collection like I won't take restored copies mm-hmm. but that's something that generally it helps talking that out with, with someone like me who can say these are the pros and cons of each of the decisions you might choose to make and one of the obvious ones would be the resale yes. possibility of yes. a pristine versus a very good. Or even when you're donating. Uh, for example, we have a client who's considering donating his one of 100 Ulysses. The first edition had a 1,000 copies. The 100 of them were signed by Joyce, and he has a beautiful one mm. in just pristine wrappers, not any restoration at all. It's gorgeous. And he wanted to donate it to his alma mater, and the question was, does his alma mater have one? They do, but it's not in what they called exhibitable condition. So these are the type of things that are huge considerations for people when they're making purchases like that. And, mm-hmm. and so it's much more sort of advice to navigate rather than buying. I mean, there are plenty of times when there's been a more expensive copy that I've said, don't worry about that. That's not for you. That's not what you're doing. Um, it really is person to person. How Honestly, how has business been for you in Las Vegas of all places? We get that question a lot because people are very confused by the idea of a rare bookstore being in Las Vegas. 
business has been great for us here. We get a lot of new people coming here who've said, I've never seen anything like this before. And that was really the purpose of us coming to Las Vegas in the first place, is that rare books can be very intimidating. And um, one of the reasons why is there's a lot of esoteric information. There's a lot of nuance and it isn't necessarily, you know, welcoming people with open arms. You really no. have to dig into it, right? Well, that, and there is a kind of haughtiness that yes. uh, you'll often <laughs> encounter. Yes. Uh, we, especially in upscale stores. Yeah, we, we try to be, yes, we try to be the opposite of that. For okay. instance, I mean, we do have this beautiful sort of gentleman's library-like big wall and everything, but I don't play classical music here. <laughs> that would be pomposity overload, you okay, know? So we, sure. you have to kind of balance that out. The books are impressive, and we want to show what it looks like to have a library of this, and that's all fine and good. But we want this to be accessible to people. So Las Vegas is useful in two ways. One, it opens us up to people who have never even thought about rare book collecting because they didn't even know it existed. And there are a lot of great clients we've built up from Las Vegas who never even thought of, didn't know. Just yeah. didn't, and they said, oh, I love books. I didn't know you could buy something like this. I mean, we, we have a book of hours out there. You can buy a book of hours. Yeah. You know, the obvious point here is that these are extremely expensive books. So yes. the, the clientele that you have would be sheiks and people who've won big at the tables around the corner yeah. who want to peel off a few tens we, of thousands. And we are um, a rare book dealer who specializes in landmark books and high spots in particular. We are known for carrying really beautiful copies of really rare books. And so we haven't changed that to come to Las Vegas. That right. is definitely true. Yeah. That being said, our clients here are kind of the same as they are anywhere. The guests we get, for instance, people come in for the World Series of Poker and there are some poker guys who find us because of that. But the nice thing about setting up a gallery like this is that you have the collectors who will buy these and take these home and take care of them and then, you know, maybe they'll disperse it upon their, their death or maybe they'll donate it, something like that. Mm. But then in the meantime, you have all these people who have never seen these at all. have never seen a first edition Huckle Finn. That's why we call it a gallery, too. I mean, yes. we want people to come in, want people to look, and we want people to say, oh, I would love to have a first edition of my favorite book. And it could be within range as long as it's not, you know, Lewis and Clark. Yeah, well, it's like, it is like a, a rare book library. Mm-hmm coming in here yeah. and to see the poo books all four of them in jacket in beautiful condition very yeah that's exciting for a bibliophile yeah and it's amazing that you can do that by sort of strolling in off a off a mall. Yes, we we kind of joke here that we're probably the only place in the world where you could buy a Shakespeare folio at ten thirty at night. <laughs> so how late do you open until then? Well, we have the hours of the hotel casino, so we are open from ten in the morning until eleven at night, right. and until midnight on weekends, mm-hmm. and we are open three hundred sixty five days a year. It is funny though. We thought we thought these late hours would be just useless. We thought no one would be coming in at 8 o'clock at night. Everyone would be going to dinner and then going back to their room or whatever. And the first week we were open, we sold a Huck Finn at 10.30. You know, about a half hour before close. And we thought, oh. Well, and I can't help but think it's because someone's just one big at the table. And that guy, no, that guy was actually someone who wanted to start collecting and he went from there to collect more Twain. But we have had people when like come here and say, oh, I love that. And then they would they'd come back. I love that because casinos do a lot to make sure you don't leave with your money, <laughs> yes. right? But yeah. if you take this, I mean, it's sort of, 
it's something that you love, but also if you want to sell it 10 years down the road, yeah. you know, it, you're kind of recouping your losses in, in many cases. Well, especially if it's a landmark. Yes. As, as opposed to, yeah. you know, the, some of the secondary stuff that, that the authors may have written. Yeah, exactly. A lot of the type of things that we carry are more on the safe side as far as that goes. Okay. Uh, another thing that we see that I love is there are a lot of weddings in Las Vegas. And so the couple will come in maybe before they're getting married that night or something, and they'll see this, and one of them will freak out over a book, and the other will get it as a present. Things like that happen here a lot. A lot of celebrations happen here, a lot of occasions and events, and we're able to be part of that. Okay. That's pretty warm and fuzzy. It is. Well, but it's it's not the, the reason we came here in the first place, but it has been one of those side benefits that's nice. Well, it's an admirable risk that you've taken, <laughs> I must say. Yeah. Yeah, I can't tell you how many, I mean, even now we get it a little bit, but when we first opened here, how many people, you know, other book dealers would say, how's that Vegas thing working out Yeah, very, yeah, very skeptical. (laughs) Yes. But again, most of the people who come here tell us, they say this is a breath of fresh air. We get so many people who come in from conventions, and they're not here to gamble or anything like that. They're here for something else, and they see us, and they say they want to collect or something. On the other hand, there are plenty of gamblers, too, who also do like books, the just sheer amount of traffic Las Vegas sees mm-hmm. allows us to just show this to lots and lots of people, and maybe only one edge of that bell curve is going to end up becoming collectors with us. In the meantime, everyone gets to see us, and we get the collectors as well. Well, you're pioneering in a way, I suppose, or you're sort of trying to introduce this wonderful field to a new market, I Yeah, suppose. so many people just don't know. I mean, they have a general idea of a first edition that it's collectible or that yeah. it's a signed book. But, uh, for instance, a lot of people don't understand dust jackets and things like that. And, mm. and those are very simple things that you can explain that are also really exciting to explain in this environment. Yeah. If you have a Gatsby and jacket, it's really exciting. It's a good way, I think, to get people thinking about the value of uh, literature and what it's brought to our world. We, we have placed that symbolism upon our first editions. That's why people seek first editions over others. It's the, usually the one that has the greatest impact in the world. Mm-hmm. And so we are buying it because of that symbolism. Um, and it's nice to see that people value that symbol. It is, but on the other hand, there's all sorts of stories where you, you hear that books are, are not fetching what you would think they might they're less trendy. It's yeah. not like it's not like art or memorabilia. In some ways, though, it's kind of nice uh, because that way the book world stays less volatile. For instance, you think of contemporary art, how volatile the prices are mm-hmm. because people buy it just for investment purposes. Most yeah. people who collect, they do it because they love it. They're not yeah. doing it for an investment. And so it's not like, you know, J.D. Salinger dies and all of a sudden everything jumps up in price. Mm-hmm. And that's really nice, actually. I like that the people who do it do it because they love it yes. rather than for other yes. reasons. Yes, a certain stability in that love. Yes. Yeah. Perhaps then we could move from the business to another aspect of publishing, and that is your blog is called, is it Aldous or Aldine? I call it Aldine. You've chosen that name because of? Because of Aldous. The idea behind the name, I've always loved Aldous as printer. I mentioned my backgrounds in classical studies, so he, from the very beginning, uh, really sparked my interest. And I did a lot more research on him just in my own be- time because I liked him, because he was one of those Renaissance printers who was able to disseminate these manuscripts. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of history behind what's going on there. You have the fall of um, Constantinople 
uh, turning into Istanbul, and you have a number of Greek scholars with manuscripts coming west. And surprisingly, these are some manuscripts that people didn't know existed in in Italy, but that mm-hmm. had been in the Byzantine Empire this entire time. So he, his dates again were he he was born around 1450 and died around 1515. You'll have to double check me on that, sure. but that's okay. it's the second half of the 15th century and about the first decade or so into the 16th. And, of course, his sons did take on after him, so the Aldine Press does exist through the 16th century. And so why, why is he so important then? He was just in the right place at the right time in some ways because he was the printer there when a new manuscript was discovered instead of all these scholars all over Europe having to travel down to see it or never getting to see it. Any new information that was discovered, he could print it, and suddenly all the scholars in Europe would have access to it through a printed book. So information dissemination was a huge part of why the Renaissance was a Renaissance. And that happened a lot through printing productions like Aldous. Aldous was one of the most popular and successful at this, and that's kind of one of the reasons we know him today. Not only did he create some really wonderful typefaces, or at least ones were created under his sort of auspices, like Griffo's types, mm-hmm. the Italic type, for example. His Greek yeah. type was really great, too. Well, he was um, a lover of the Greeks. Yeah, he was a scholar himself. This is the era when the person in charge, who was sort of this master printer, had to be able to edit things himself as well. And he, he could read Latin and Greek, and he was a huge part of that, too. His whole printing production... It was a little bit like a, a modern salon or something. A lot of literary characters would come. It's like Froben in the 16th century in Erasmus. You know, these, this is where the popular authors of the day or the scholars were coming up with new manuscripts and wanting to disseminate new ideas. Anything new happening in letters would happen at a printing press like Aldous's. What do you mean happen? They would... Well, if they say, I have this new idea. Connect and communicate yeah, exactly. and read and, mm-hmm. and drink. and Yeah, no, sure. Uh-huh, yeah. sure. So mm-hmm. it, it really was like a salon. Yeah, I mean, they wouldn't necessarily have formal you know, invitations and things like you'd think of a 19th century French salon. But right. it was very much, this is where all the literary people kind of convened. Okay on and off. Some, one scholar would stop in on one day, another would come in at the same time, or they drift all in different business, but then they're together and they're talking. So he, he was printing classical texts, and he was also printing contemporary texts. Most of his texts were classical in this case, okay. because a lot of the scholars he was talking to were scholars who were rediscovering ancient works, okay. um, because of not only the Byzantine fall, but they were just actually going through monasteries and things even in Italy and discovering a bunch. I mean, there are famous examples of Boccaccio, for example, finding amazing manuscripts. So it was still that environment. So a lot of it is Renaissance rediscovery at this point. The other thing that's really interesting about Aldous is, it, you, you probably know him as famous for uh, disseminating the uh, octavo version of the book in the pocket volume and that speaks to the same idea which is we want this to be very easily spread this is something you can take with you wherever you go it's very convenient yeah a pocket book yes very convenient like the everyman the first everyman yeah i mean at this point still they're going to be very expensive you have still a very specialized group of people who are going to buy them who can even read latin and greek Although one of Aldous's first printing productions was a Greek grammar and lexicon in order to say, okay, I'm going to be printing Greek text, so here are the tools you need in order to 
read the things I'll be printing later. Yes, yeah. So he just was very smart like that. And, and punctuation, uh, right? He, didn't yes. he first use the He standardized it. Yeah, he standardized a lot of punctuation. That comes with a lot of printers um, in general. I mean, Caxton's also famous for standardization in English mm. uh, because he even talks about it in one of his prefaces about which word should I use because people use different words for the word egg. If I say my version of the word egg here, someone else not going to understand that word. So Caxton had to make certain decisions about which spelling of a word he was going to use or which version, and that had the effect of standardizing because that printed material is what was disseminated over large geographic distances rather than staying within the little countrysides where each dialect lived. Right, okay. So the same thing for Aldous, definitely. And he was just famous as a kind of a popularizer, and that was very, very successful. He died poor, though. Well, he's a printer. <laughs> so many of them, right? No. They're just for your being art, right? ruined. Well, if you live the life of a scholar, I think you, sh- you should be prepared to live the life poorly. I mean, yeah. there are some exceptions, but generally. But it was this was an era when print runs were a few hundred copies. Mm-hmm. Aldous is the one who bumped it up to a thousand. Some he even had like three thousand. He did some very large print runs at a time when other people were doing three hundred, five hundred copies because he could sell them. Okay, so let's get crafts here. How available are they and how much they go for? They are available. You can buy copies. If I were a a collector, some just interested party of independent means and I wasn't working here because I can't collect as working here, that's that's too dangerous. (laughs) Uh, But say I were to do that, I would love to get a complete run of Aldine's. And what um, what is that? What's the number? I think it's around 100. Okay. So it's actually within a doable number. It's not crazy. And I'm talking once published within his lifetime, too, because, of course, you have his sons. But there's a big range as far as price. I mean, some of his really sought-after works, say Plato, Aristotle, Homer, yeah. those can really get up there in price tens of thousands. I don't know if any get quite to 100,000, but certainly in the high tens of thousands. And what's, now again, obviously it's, con- it's conditional upon the, the condition, right? but what's an average price for an Aldine? Mm. You can yeah. in the thousands, you can get Aldine books in the thousands. Okay. You have to be careful about that though, because there are pirated editions, particularly starting around 1500 and onward. He, he was popular enough that other printers started taking notice. And so you'll see an anchor in Dolphin, and you'll think, oh, that's an Elving. And yeah. it may not be. You have to be careful about that. Yeah, okay. So. And now, what is it about the books that are so appealing? Well, for me, the, the big thing is I have the interest in classical works. I love the idea of getting an Odysseo print caps of uh, Aristotle, because that was the first time it was published in Greek. Before that, you get it in Latin. So Aldous was famous because he had the, the Greek font. He was famous for printing a lot of Greek works in the original language. And I, as, again, my background in linguistics, I am very big on reading something in the original. And Aldous felt that way as well, and that was important enough to him that it was a big part of what he did. Which is why it would be so popular, because everyone would want, or every scholar would want to be able to do that. And also Greek was, and Latin were both spoken fairly... Right, much more in range yes. of learning at yeah. that time. What about the, the books as objects? There's something particularly appealing about about them? Well, one thing that kind of seems obvious, but it should be stated, is that when you're holding a book from the 15th century, the weight of it hits you. 
Mm-hmm. And you can say that, oh, this book's from 1470, and that sounds really impressive, but holding it is a different thing. It just is. That's why we have this gallery. You hold the book, and it's a different experience. You're holding it, so what? Well, the symbolic impact, I think... But that goes for any book. I'm, well, I'm not asking well, about it these does. It does, but in this book, what you're dealing with is you're dealing with the fonts that Griffo created, for example. Like today, um, there are fonts that are based on him. So Bimbo is actually a good, good example of a font that's popular today that was based on one he did for a scholar named Bimbo. So you have ones that are based on but they're not the same. And what you're dealing with there is you're dealing with different typography and really beautiful typography. You're dealing with different page design. You're dealing with different type of paper. We don't make paper with the materials they make them today. Today, as you probably know, we're dealing with wood pulp, which starts being pushed into paper production in the 1840s. Before then, you're looking at cotton rag. So you have completely different tactile experience, completely different visual experience. Um, These sort of things are what impress upon you that this was made in a different time. And what was that time? This is the time of rediscovery. This is the time when people were able to say, not only look what I found, but I get to tell everyone about it, which Mm. was not the case before printing, or at least not very easily. What about the covers? The vellum or uh, generally vellum. Limp, okay. limp vellum is what you're likely to see Aldous uh, printings in. There are exceptions. I mean, one of the great early collectors who was a big fan of the Aldean Press is Jean Grolier, French, and he, you know, the Grolier bindings, where he had those custom made. Even early on, that's the way that binding was a different business than printing. And so, obviously, you would have your sheets, particularly for shipping to some place like France, they would be shipped white, so without any boards or anything at all, just kind of loose pages. Mm-hmm. And then the binding would happen. But the most typical popular binding at the time would have been a limp vellum. So that's okay. what you're likely to see Alding books in. You'll have exceptions like Grolier, but... Anything else about them that, that excites you? Hmm. I think we've covered a lot of it. I just... I love that Aldous was not only a printer, but he was a scholar. He saw very early on in the history of printing in the West what the press could do for the world in disseminating this information. I mean, that I think it's easy in retrospect to say, oh, look, the printing press, and of course it spreads this information, now everyone knows. But at the time, for instance, one of the reasons why printing took off in Venice but not in Florence in the 15th century is because in Florence, the Medici were obviously kind of in charge, and they didn't like printed books. They had a huge collection of, really amazing collection of manuscripts. Yeah. So people followed their lead. Because because their knowledge physically is power, right? Yes. So in Florence, Florence was a little bit behind. You had a lot more interesting things happening in Venice mm-hmm. because simply of trends. And yeah. Aldous was just kind of on the trend of history there. He really understood not only the capabilities of the of the format, but also what it would mean to reach new people. And, I mean, that's the reason why I call the blog what I do, is because I'm hoping that I can make literature accessible, hoping it can reach new people. I, I write a post about a book, and I hope people say, oh, I want to revisit that, or I've never heard of that. I mean, I recently did one on Mark Twain, and I talked about Innocence Abroad, which, you know, most people, they had to read Huck Finn or Tom Sawyer in school. Innocence Abroad was his first breakout bestseller, though, that was what he was known for. Before he did Tom Sawyer, which he was really on the fence about with Tom Sawyer, he's like, is this a kid's book? Is it for adults? I don't know if I want to be a kid's author. That was a long, big struggle for him. In retrospect, we see him 
as an author of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. But at the time, he was famous for his humor, for his humorous lectures, and his lectures were based on his travels. And so his humorous travel essays, like Innocence Abroad, were what he was famous for. And so people forget that. People forget that. People don't know that. And so, you know, I did a post about Innocence Abroad and took a couple quotes from it that I really liked. And my hope is that someone will see that and say, oh, you know, I liked Huckleberry Finn, and that is really cool. I didn't know that. And then they'll go pick up the book and read it. That's kind of the idea. Do you, with your posts, do you also talk about the, the history of the publishing and printing of that book? Or do you just focus on the content? Depends on the post. I do both. Okay. I have an entire post just about the scandalous Uncle Silas plate in Huck Finn because that's just a great story and it gets people kind of interested in bibliography when they never thought they would be. Mm-hmm. So um, I will do that. I mean, for example, in the Innocence Abroad post, I didn't talk about why Tom Sawyer didn't sell as well as Innocence Abroad because a lot of it has to do with Tom Sawyer's being delayed and piracies, etc. So as it comes up, I'll bring it up. I do try to keep it somewhat unified in any given post to make sure that it's easily digestible. Someone can read it really quickly and then say, hey, guess what I learned? You're sort of looking at the content, you're studying it, but you're also concerned about the actual physical printing of it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about Aldous and his press. When I first saw the name of your blog, I went straight to William Pickering Mm -hmm. because of his Aldine series. Yes. So perhaps you could introduce us to Pickering. Sure. So Pickering is much later in the history of printing, though still, I mean, a lot of people will think that he's, he's sort of old, an older printer, 19th century seems very old, but it's not really in the history of books, as you know. So he's a 19th century printer. I think, you know, you're looking at dates of something like 1810 um, to the 1870s, something like that. But really mid-century is when he's printing, you know, 1830s onward. Uh, The interesting thing about Pickering is that he started as a rare and antiquarian book dealer. That was that was how he was making his living. He very soon moved, though, on to printing new books. And I think that the thing that was going on with Pickering is that he was very well known for his literary taste. He was very, very well read. And he not only loved printing the classics, I think that's where he was well read, but he loved finding what new authors would be classics later. I mean, he became the publisher of Coleridge, for example. Mm-hmm. Blake as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for the, at least the typeset version of yes. uh, Songs of Innocence. So he really cared about pushing literature into the future mm-hmm. while still uh, holding on to the classics because I think it was clear in his mind that the classics are what what got him excited about literature and got him wanting to know what's going to be next. Yeah. So he wanted to kind of be on both sides. Sure. Initially started with the one because that was his education and then he kind of moved on the other. And what's really interesting about Pickering, I mean, he had a number of kind of innovations that made him popular. There's the, the idea of the cloth-bound binding, for example. 1820, 1821 to 25 in there, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it's quite early. The thing that's interesting about the cloth-bound binding is it, it's, it's one of those popular changes like Aldous that made things more accessible. Bindings could be quite expensive you do them separately the leather it's expensive the cloth binding was nice because it was cheap enough that you could still read it and you wouldn't feel bad about throwing it away whereas if you got it leather bound you you wouldn't (laughs) want to throw away your investment so it was still cheap enough that that it was disposable but it was nice enough and uh, took 
enough care of the book that you could keep it that way if you wanted. Hmm. Uh, so that that's the balance that the cloth-bound binding gave to the world and why it's sort of taken on from there. It's very, very useful to kind of balance those two. He was also interested, again, in that sort of pocketbook yes. portability. The uh, Diamond series is a perfect yeah. example of that. That's one of his earliest series. And again, those are mostly major name classics, Milton and that kind of thing. He's probably best known at this point for the Aldean series. The Poets. Is it just the English poets? No, or? no, he does more than oh, that, I believe. Okay. One thing that he's not given, I think, enough credit for is his uh, partnership with the Chiswick Press. Because Chiswick Press is... Chiswick or Chiswick? I don't know. I've only ever read it. I okay. say Chiswick, but I imagine someone from England would say Chiswick. Okay. <laughs> the interesting thing there is that... A lot of people, when they're talking about the arts and press movement, they'll cite that press as sort of not the beginning of the arts and press, but one of the sort of mass presses that was trying to do some fine press printing before you get into Kelmscott. Do you mean the arts and crafts? Yes, what did I say? Arts and press. Yes, arts yeah. and crafts. What did you say? You okay, mean... so you have the arts and crafts movement, which, which really doesn't start until the end of the 19th century. That's right, 1890s. Um, yeah. One of the big events of the arts and crafts movement is the Kelmscott Press and the beginning of the fine press literary movement. That's where I was mixing the two of the fine press movement. Yeah. That being said, there were a sort of in isolated incidences of sort of like fine presses before Kelmscott. The it wasn't press. all dull and industrial. Mass-produced. Uh-huh. Which is the criticism that the arts and crafts yeah. movement laid on the, la- which, the previous... Which there was a lot of that. Right. They were reacting to something that was there. There are always exceptions. I mean, it's never yeah. as black and white as people want to say. And the Chiswick Press is a perfect example of that. We One of the things that we uh, handle a lot, which I love, is, uh, I don't know if you know Henry Shaw, the author-scholar who did a lot of medieval work, and, and one of the great things that he brought to publishing in the 19th century was he wanted to create these very, very visual works of medieval scholarship. And it was Pickering with the Chiswick Press who published these. And sometimes, I mean, you get into color lithography a little bit later, but in the beginning you're talking really nice lithography, sometimes yeah, color, wood engravings. Right? Yeah, they, well, mm. they would hand color it yes, too in the beginning. Yeah. So we, I think we even have it here, I'll show you a copy of Shaw's Dresses and Decoration of the Middle Ages with hand coloring. And it's been heightened with gum Arabic and it's really a beautiful thing. So Pickering, he did the popularization thing. There are a lot of things that he did, the diamond series and the cloth bindings that were meant for popular use and to spread it, to be interest in these books. But then he also clearly did really care about quality and he really did care about the book arts. And his uh, partnership with the Chiswick Press is a good example of that. That was Whitting, Charles Whittington. Yes. So I guess again, how common are these what kind of money are we talking about? These are much more common. You do, of course, get a range again because there are some things more famous for than others. And again, should we should we talk about Shaw books or books with hand coloring? That's a completely different realm than than an Aldine or Diamond Classics. Let's talk about both. Okay. So the Shaw books you're looking into mid thousands probably. I mean, I think our dress and decorations thirty five hundred, so it doesn't get too much up there. The large paper edition. That's more like five, six thousand. Ackerman's a little bit earlier, but you have these really beautiful aqua tents that he did, and those get into over ten thousand. The the Pickering books, like the Aldine ones, those ones tend to stay under five thousand for the most part. And that that probably sounds like a big range for you. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, I, I've seen them for a hundred bucks. 
you uh, can get way yes you can get way low but again one thing to keep in mind with those is that there are multiple editions of any given so you have a second aldean edition a third aldean edition that will make a difference in the price too if you're talking about the first aldean edition of you know byron then it's going to be a little bit more things that make a difference for something like that too is binding uh, condition and how popular they are one thing that he was really well known for besides the aldean is like his book of common prayer copies that he did yeah so something like that that's going to get uh, a little bit higher than hundreds okay not not high into the thousands but no. could get higher into the than the hundreds and they're they're so beautiful in the hand aren't they they just they sort of just sit there and they're i don't know just it has a sort of sense of being solid and well made and nice to possess yeah yeah no i i think that that is a testament to pickering's own priorities. He cared about the design. He cared about how it would feel in your hand. And in some ways, too, that shows him as one of those shining exceptions during this mass industrial age. He is trying to be popular. He is trying to sell a lot of books. The cloth-bound volumes, that's exactly trying to, you know, make use of the growing literary class. On the other hand, he still did care about the book art side. He did care about creating a really nice product. Mm-hmm. I like the anchor and the dolphin. It's speed, but with strength and solidity as Deliberation, well. Deliberation, yes. Uh, Festina lente. That's, that's something else I do like about the Aldine Press. This, this applies to Pickering, too. I mean, they are they're two peas in a pod here where they felt they were on a mission to give people access to these texts. Mm-hmm. And they knew that that was so important to get them out there, and yet at the same time, they couldn't go too fast because if it's not a great addition as far as how it's edited, things like that, both Pickering and Aldous were known for picking excellent edit- editors and having sharp editing. You could say that of Dent and the the Everyman yeah, uh, okay. series mm-hmm. as well. They had, I think it was Isaac Disraeli who was the editor. Ah. And real attention to to detail, to quality. And then you look at Penguin, and they had Tashold, this famous German designer. Again, these books were, in many cases, stitched mm. paperbacks. Mm-hmm. He wanted to get them into the hands of the general public for under the cost of a pack of cigarettes. Exactly, that's the balance, right? I mean, yeah. William Morris said he wanted to do the same, but mm. he wasn't all that practical with it. He really had these socialistic ideals, mm-hmm. and yet you had to be pretty well off to be able to afford his books. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Whereas there are other people who kind of accomplished that, and it is a difficult balance. And and so it's I, I hate to fault him completely because that's yeah, a difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... You know, it, it's still it's it's amazing that people were able to accomplish that to a certain point because you want to get out as much as possible, and yet you need to make sure everything is as high quality too. So I suppose that's just to summarize. In a way, these uh, printers, scholars, were successful for a time anyway because they were concerned about uh, the quality of the workmanship. Uh, the artistic merits, but also they were able to to get a whole heck of a lot of them <laughs> yeah. out the door. Well, and I think you can see, too, in this environment, why those types of people appeal to me, because mm-hmm. you have someone who cares about the scholarly side and wants to make sure that everything is pinpoint perfect, accurate, and in the case of us, you know, the highest quality condition, that kind of thing for us. And on the other hand, you want to give as many people access to it as possible, which means on our end, 
making it accessible. And there are many different ways to do that. Pickering makes it accessible in cloth-bound bindings or yeah. you know, diamond series. Aldous does it by creating his Greek grammar. There are different ways to make things accessible and yet high quality at the same time. Yeah. So that, you can see why it would appeal to me. It's a very similar thing. Just before we leave, or I leave you, I love to find out or to learn about areas of collecting and based on our conversation that are affordable, that will give you beautiful books that maybe not that many people know about. Mm -hmm. Does anything kind of pop into your mind? Well, I would really encourage, if people are interested in that, I would really encourage people to explore private presses in general. There are some private presses that have become very celebrated, that their books get very expensive. Of course, Callum Scott's an example. We have Duff's Press and that type of mm. thing. Mm. But there are a lot of others that um, do like, some really beautiful work. Like what? Let's see. What are ones that kind of go lower? The Veil Press is one. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you will be but. surprised, though, how many tiny... Even um, the Black Mountain Institute here in Las Vegas at UNLV, they have a press, and they do really beautiful deluxe signed limited editions. And they want to uh, move them. I know they've got a lot of them on hand right now. Yes, they do want to move them. So there's a plug for Black Mountain Institute. Yes. That's the exact type of thing, I think, that is really appealing. And I personally think that the more that we move into the digital age, the more that when you're talking about a physical book, you're going to be talking about something like that. Paperback trade editions will be replaced, for the most part, by the convenience of digitizing them and being able to carry them anywhere, etc. But the private presses are doing something that is exclusive to that medium. And I think that you can actually have a great flowering of private presses with this transition because what people realize is they look at digital books and they say, okay, what does this offer that a print book can't? And then they do the same thing. What does a print book offer that a digital book can't? And this type of thing and fine presses sort of embody what a digital book can't do. There's there's a more sensory experience. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say, again, that there are not benefits to digital books. I I don't want to come off... I mean, people think, oh, you must hate the Kindle. I don't want to come off like I hate technology, not at all. There are pros and cons in each medium. And I think that as one medium gains ascendance, there's always action-reaction. There's going to be a reaction from the other medium that's doing the same type of uh, text to say, this is what we can do that you can't. So I think that fine presses are some of the most exciting things to look into right now, personally. Can you, you could have given us one example. Yeah, Black Mountain, I like that one. Um, And there are other, I mean, if you want to go back earlier, because we don't do a lot of super contemporary fine presses. So when I come across them, it's more because I'm curious and I see them, or, you know, Black Mountain, I know, because we're here. But if you want to go earlier, the type of things that we would handle that are still definitely within range for people sort of a private press, more fine press, is the Limited Editions Club. Yes, and they got some very interesting sort of high-profile people involved. At, uh, and yes. Some of them, didn't they? So those ones can get more expensive. For instance, mm. Matisse illustrated Ulysses. Picasso did Lusistrata, uh, mm. and those ones are more expensive. But one thing that I really love about the Limited Editions Club is the range that they do. They don't only do kind of the greatest hits of any individual author. They do a lot of the more obscure titles and they really experiment with all the different illustrators that they get. So the Limited Editions Club is just mammoth. There are so many things you can explore there. But there are a lot of presses like that. Well, the Nonsuch. Oh, I love the Nonsuch. Just more recently uh, in Canada, there's the Barbarian Press. They produce some oh. magnificent stuff. I don't think I've ever seen any of those. See, and I, I love that. It's not the type of thing I handle as a dealer because we 
tend to do true firsts. But I think that if someone is looking for things, you know, now to collect, and if they're interested in fine presses, you can even just explore by geography. Say you want to focus on California presses, there's plenty to go off of just on that. And I think it's a very worthy pursuit. Super. Well, thanks for uh, giving us a, a roadmap to the future and an idea of what's gone on in the past. Yeah, well, those are my opinions for you. <laughs> Take them with them what you will. Very good. I've been speaking with uh, Rebecca Romney, who is the manager of the Las Vegas Gallery of Bowman Rare Books. Thanks again. Thank you.